Hey, what's up? You're listening to the Hammer and Nigel Show podcast. Thanks for checking it out, and make sure you subscribed. Talk to me. Hey, what, what are you doing? Hammer and Nigel on 93 WIBC. My name is Nigel. Jason Hammer is here. We'll go to the drivehubler.com hotline and bring on Francis Martell, Breitbart's world editor. Francis, it's uh, been a minute. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm doing great. I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for inviting me. I definitely want to get to the, I mean, it's a tragic story behind these massive protests in Iran, which mostly led by women. So definitely want to get to that here in a second. It's 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 quite a story, but I do want to start in Ukraine. It seems like the only time we even ever mention what's going on in that region on this show anymore is when the United States sends another check uh, another multi-billion-dollar check, which is quite frequently, but but now Russia is is having these referendums to an annex captured chunks of eastern Ukraine. We have talks of Russia using tactical nukes. It just seems like it's been a disaster for the Russians, but the prospect of a cornered Putin is also pretty scary, especially with all the the nuke rhetoric. And I'm wondering how you see it and what's going on over there. Sure. Um, so I would start by saying, you know, this war is eight years old. People, a lot of people only started paying attention in February, but the, the referendum strategy, Putin did that in Crimea, which is supposed to be part of Ukraine. And in 2014, uh, he faked a referendum where the majority of residents wanted to be part of Russia. And Crimea has been under Russian rule for those eight years and people didn't really care. And now you're going to have a repeat of this because it worked, because it was successful. Um, President Obama did nothing to stop that. Um, and, you know, they don't want to have that conversation. This could have been a much less severe geopolitical problem if Obama and Vice President Biden had acted. Um, but now they want to talk about it as if it's this new uh, and, and horrible danger. Um, you know, I think the most interesting thing about this situation right now is not what's going on on the ground in Ukraine, because the war itself has kind of stagnated. But what's going on in Russia? Um, so last week, Putin announced that he was going to start this conscription where he was going to call up people who had experience in the military, reservists, um, and he was going to increase the number of troops in Ukraine. The Russian people panicked. Um, there's yeah. hundreds of thousands of people that are fleeing. And now there's a migrant crisis where countries like Kazakhstan and Mongolia have to deal with thousands of Russians trying to barrel in. Um, and obviously, Kazakhstan is not a country used to giant migrant influxes, right? Um, so I think that's just incredible, the destabilization of that and the vote of no confidence from the Russian people to Putin, where he announces, you know, we're in this great patriotic war and now I need men to step up. By the way, trust me, it's not all of you. It's just the veterans. And, you know, like the entire young male population of Russia is desperately fleeing because they want nothing to do with this and they don't believe in this war. So I think that's just absolutely fascinating. And um, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how is how is this war going to shape out when Putin runs out of troops? Francis Jason Hammer here, and I admit I'm probably more cynical than most when it comes to our media here in the United States, the national media. But when I scroll through my timeline the last week, week and a half, 
you get the impression that Ukraine is on the verge of taking control of this thing. And it feels like we're only getting a fraction of the story. Take me through what's really happening here. Of course. Um, so in terms of expectations, Ukraine is absolutely winning because, uh, you know, we all thought that in February, Zelensky was going to flee the country in two days and the whole thing was going to fall and there was going to be a puppet Russian dictator in Ukraine. And not only did that not happen, the Russians haven't been able to advance anywhere. Um, so it really does look good given the size of the, the Ukrainian military versus what they're up against. They're not doing a bad job. Um, the issue here is it looks good for the Ukrainians if you ignore the other eight years of war, yes. where, again, the Russians annexed Crimea, and they've been heavily investing in the Donbass region, which is the eastern part of Ukraine next to Russia. So um, let's assume that they kick the Russians out of the greater Kiev area, they kick them out of Mariupol, Kharkiv, the southern, all the places that Russia invaded in February, right? That still returns you to the status quo of 2014, where the entirety of Crimea, which is super important for commerce and geopolitically, that's all still Russian. And then, you know, what does Ukraine have left? What fight do they have left to start taking back the parts of that are under Russian control for eight years? Because the people in Crimea, they have Russian IDs. They have Russian driver's licenses, passports, you know, license plates on their cars. That I, I just don't see how Ukraine is in any short term in a position to actually kick Russia out of the entirety of its territory. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think people need to be uh, just people. I think people are surprised or only kind of pay attention to this here and there that that. Wait a minute. You're, you're saying this has been going on since 2014. Now, the only difference yeah. is this this rhetoric of tactical nukes and a corner to Putin and and what's he going to do what was going to be our response if uh, if some sort of nuclear device is used is that something that's on your radar um, you know, it is because I don't want to say never say never, um, and humanity is fickle. And I, you know, I was the first one to say before February, this war has been going on for eight years. Yes. You know, Putin's not going to invade Kiev. That makes no sense. And then he went ahead and did it. So <laughs> I'll be the first one to, to eat crow on that. But whenever I hear the nuclear conversation, I think about the fact that Pakistan and India have nukes. Pakistan and India hate each other. The former prime minister of Pakistan that was ousted in April is a pro-Osama bin Laden Islamist who openly talks about jihad um, and, and supports it. And that guy that guy had nukes for years yeah. and nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I feel like it's extremely, extremely unlikely. Um, you know, the, the devastation, I think something more likely would be, for example, the Russians bombing a nuclear power plant and causing, you know, a horrible um, chemical disaster or nuclear disaster that way um, than them actually dropping a nuclear weapon. That would be highly unlikely. But again, I, I want to never say never on this one. Just that's really not the, the top worry I have right now with this situation. Frances Martell is with us. She's the world editor at Breitbart. I do want to get into what's happening in Iran because I think that's very important. But one more thing, last thing here on Russia, Ukraine. Have we heard anything, your you know sources, whatever, on the health of Vladimir Putin? Because that was a big story a couple of months ago. There were photos of him like holding on to a table and he wasn't moving around really good. And uh, any updates on the health of the Russian leader? 
As far as we know, nothing has changed. Um, he seems totally fine. There's really no evidence of anything big there. And it, it, the, the rumors reminded me a lot of how Kim Jong-un dies every four or five years. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's that sort of thing. And, you know, we know the Ukrainians are putting on a, a huge propaganda campaign. So I wouldn't be surprised if they are trying to destabilize Russia from the inside by throwing that out there. Francis, this story out of Iran, I think it's it's been getting more and more attention here in the United States. But these these protests, these Iranian women that are, I guess, you know, you could say courageously leading protests. Um, what's behind this and, and and how did this all get started and, and, and moving forward? What does what does this look like? Um, sure. So this all uh, this erupted out of the death of a 22-year-old woman named Masa Amini, who was beaten to death because her hijab was on wrong. Um, she was not protesting the hijab, the headscarf. She was wearing one, but a little bit of her hair was visible, and the Iranian morality pe- police beat her to death. She was in a coma for a little while, and she died. Um, really horrible story. Um, and, you know, sporadic protests have happened in Iran for years years on and off, and the pattern is usually big, peaceful protests, unarmed people, followed by Iranian police killing a bunch of people, followed by silence. <laughs> and then a few years, we get the protests again. Um, the big difference now is, number one, these are women-led protests, because the women in Iran do not support hijab. Um, hijab is not even, it's not in the Quran. Um, the Quran says that you should be modest in how you dress. It doesn't say anything specific about covering your hair or your face. Um, And so they don't support that. It's not really a Persian tradition. Um, And the other thing here is that we're seeing violence from the protesters towards the repressors. We're seeing reports of repressive security forces being killed in protests. And that is new. Um, Usually we see just, you know, the unfortunate massacre of protesters with no one really fighting back. We don't see police cars overturned and, you know, fear out of the Iranian security apparatus. So that's kind of the new thing here. And what's been the response from other nations? I I'd like, you know, you, you check Ilhan Omar's Twitter feed, uh, the, you know, Talib, uh, members of the squad. I, I, I like. I feel like the term oppression is thrown around a little too loosely in the United States of America. When you have something like what happened in Iran, where a woman beaten to death for showing a little bit too much of her hair, uh, has there been a world outcry? And and I'm wondering, you know, where the feminists are here in the United States. You know, I've seen some feminists on the left here try to equate this somehow to the Dobbs ruling. To, yeah, abortion. Know, yeah, I did see AOC do that. Yeah, she tried to... Yeah, t- yeah, which uh, is completely, geez. you know, kill, the, the quote-unquote right to kill a baby female in the womb is somehow, you know, just as sacred as not being beaten to death for, like, showing your hair. Um, it's <laughs> completely absurd. Um, but there is, I think... The left, and and it's important to note, Iran is Islamist, but geopolitically it is a leftist state. And by that I mean all of its friends are leftists. All of its friends are Cuba, Venezuela, China, all the communist countries. So that's its neighborhood, ideologically. Um, The left understands that this is not a winning, you know, issue for them. Like, you can't defend beating a young girl to death over this. Um, So they're either being silent or they're trying to co-opt it in that way 
way, like try to turn it into, um, you know, some equivalent of something that they want in their localized politics like abortion. Um, so that seems to be the way they're handling it right now. And I think and to, to, to wrap this up here, I, I think people would be shocked to, to learn that Iran didn't used to be this way. I mean, they were a cosmopolitan sort of semi-hip place at one point in the in the 60s and 70s, right? Absolutely. And, you know, throughout history, a lot of the Middle East, it's, it always blows my mind when you read about, like, medieval Europe versus the, the medieval Middle East. And it was places like Damascus that were really, like, the cool progressive places with all the colleges and all the, you know, all, all the more advanced stuff. Um, so they don't... That's why the protests are so big, especially against the hijab, because they don't see it as an innate part of their identity at all. You know, in, within the lifetimes of a lot of people that are still alive, Iran was not this. It was not this radical Islamist kind of place. And so they see it as reclaiming their culture to fight against this. Uh, Francis, what are you working on at Breitbart and where can people find uh, more of it? Um, well, if you go to Breitbart, you go to the world page and you'll see uh, all my work under the, the international pages. Um, you can come to Twitter at uh, Francis Martel and I'll be there. Um, and my latest story is on uh, the Chinese government putting together its own uh, Top Gun knockoff movie that is about to debut on Saturday. <laughs> all right. I, I definitely want to have you back on to talk about that for sure. Uh, let's try to get you on next week again, Francis. We really love having you on. Have a, a great week. I would love that. Thank you so much. I had a great time. It's the Hammer and Nigel Show. Be sure to catch us every weekday, 3 to 7 on 93 WIBC, or subscribe and get it right to your phone.